All right, Jerry Mason Kick and Lawyer, another law talk. Thank you guys for joining us again. Uh, as always, if you haven't, please like, follow, and subscribe to the content. We're available on all social media platforms, podcast platforms, Facebook, YouTube, etc. Uh, so please check us out. Also available on TikTok. Uh, on the podcast stuff, make sure you give it a the channel a follow. I appreciate it. You know, we're not doing this for money. We're doing this just to entertain everybody. If you haven't already, please download N.A. The Band's album, Inside My Head. It is available for free wherever you listen to music, on Spotify, Apple, iTunes, etc. They're good local guys. One of them's my son, so help them out. And then Michelle Allen is a longtime sponsor of our show. If you're going to buy, sell, rent, lease real estate, please give her a holler. Real nice lady in the area and um, uh, always been very supportive of the kicking lawyer. And, of course, Mason's High Octane Martial Arts is located in Covington and Millington, two locations, been open 30 years. Visit masonsmartialarts.com for some specials we have going on. We're glad to get you guys set up to kick, folks. And then the new Endeavor that should be open in two weeks. I'm actually in the building now. Jam Books and Records is located off the square here in Covington, Tennessee. You can check us out. Right now we're on social media. Hopefully uh, that'll be a lot of fun to do. And then Josh will be glad to help you with your online branding uh, emails, website design, uh, drone footage of of uh, you and your wife or whatever. Just visit masonitemarketing.com. Oddly specific. <laughs> <laughs> well, you just did a wedding or something, I thought. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, joining me today is Mr. Daryl LaRiviere. Did I say it right again? You did. I got it two times okay. right. Yeah, and so we had his, and I can say better half. I was thinking about that earlier. Like, you can't say you're the better half. That's, like, uh, uh, politically incorrect. So... We have to go with, she was your better half, right? She's she's my better half, specifically. Exactly, yes. exactly. So how are you? I'm excellent. How are you doing? Good, good. I know you're a, a man of many, many talents. Josh was telling me how you've been in a band, and of course we talked about sort of briefly last time you were a detective. Um, but I did want to start with, y'all were kind of talking about it before. I was kind of curious to hear about it, and we don't have to give the specifics you just discussed, but you had the uh, Memphis Comic and Fantasy Expo this weekend. Mm-hmm. I think both of you went to. And uh, what was your big takeaway over there, Josh? Um, it's, it's MCFC. Everybody should go. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I figured. I saw you and your, your wife look like you were dressed up pretty good there. Was that for the Piranha Room part? That was, or was for there the something Piranha else? Room, yeah. Okay. She was hosting the Piranha Room with uh, with her friend Lauren. And, cool. And uh, this is the second year now that they have done that. Mm-hmm. And so we dressed out for it to go. And uh, I was hoping to shoot some video to kind of help them promote the Piranha Room, but the lighting in there wasn't that great. Yeah. And, and so I kind of had to put that aside and just enjoyed the party itself. So Nice. Yeah. Were there any comic books, comic book vendors? There was one. One? <laughs> yeah. Well, I asked because, look, you know, it, it was that one's a comic and fantasy, and I've been to it. I went to, I think you had a booth there, Josh, yeah, one year. I, I have a booth most years. That was one of the first ones. I say it's one of the first ones I went to. I think the first one I went to that you were at was at the um, – the glass building there. That was that was MCFC. So it was it. They, okay. Yeah, they used to have them there, and what happened was both MCFC and Mid South Con both used to be at that venue, and then the that hotel stopped allowing comic conventions to um, have their their Comic Cons there because I guess they didn't like the furries and the the dressed up people coming in and it out. It confuses <laughs> the normies. Yeah. Uh, huh. I think it would make it uh, more interesting if you're. Oh, a, it's definitely interesting. If you're a normie but, and then but, you go there. You know, a lot of folks can't get their head around any of the concepts with Comic Con because you mm-hmm. got to think about the different fandoms that walk in there. Just when you think you understand what you're seeing, 
you know, somebody walks in with something that's just completely out of your ability to get your head around it. And if, if you don't have some kind of a scope of reference for it, it's a lot. You know, one thing that's interesting about all those folks uh, in that world, because obviously we host the Covington Comic Con, is outside of that world, sometimes they're the shyest people. Mm-hmm. And then you get them in that world and they actually have more confidence than the, the normies that you say, you know, I, like they're willing to put it out there at the convention. I think that's the attraction for a lot of the people that go to Comic-Cons. I think that they find their strength in getting that chance to kind of become somebody else. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when that somebody else is a superhero, that makes it even better. Yeah. And there, there are downsides to that. Uh, there are very specific cosplays that, that a lot of times you can count on them to be problematic. Deadpool being one of those, mm-hmm. because a lot of the guys of the that character. cosplay Deadpool try to get way into the character. Yeah. And I've seen that go south a lot. But I think it's a great thing when people can latch on to something that they believe allows them to kind of come out of their shell and be that, that stronger person and that more expressive person because they're not being them anymore. Mm-hmm. And they can they can step into that and embody that and kind of become that character. And, you know, my, my wife is a great example of that. Mm-hmm. She's normally a very laid back and relatively introverted person, but one of her favorite cosplays is Bellatrix Lestrange from Harry Potter. And when she puts that get up on, she becomes a crazy witch from Azkaban. Yeah. And uh, so it, it allows her to kind of Step well, out. I think, though, I would push a little bit on what you said in that sometimes I think it is a facet of that person. Mm-hmm. You know, like it sort of empowers them to display uh, an aspect of their personality that they often have to have suppressed to some right. degree. Because I had, I had, I was one of the normies, I guess, but I was closet not. I've always been a nerd and I'm open with being in the nerddom, but I wasn't at the point where I would cosplay. Right. And then I kind of got a. Uh, uh, not tricked into it, but it was more of a challenge to do this budget Batman thing. And that's my cosplay. So I goes, and then budget Batman's, and then I became a whole character of budget Batman. You know, I stay in the character when I'm in the outfit and uh, it's a lot of fun, but budget Batman is me. You know what right. I mean? Like it's a, 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 an acceleration of my personality. Anyway, I think my position now on the cosplay thing. And, and, and the other thing too is Josh and I, if you know, I assume you'll know him like I know him. Y'all have known each other a while. We Josh's personality is uh, less reserved on certain things than mine is, whereas I may have the same opinion he has. I might not quite be as vocal about it as he is. And when I say that is, our family was raised, this is going to sound bad, but we will make fun of things, but not to make fun of them. It's more almost a sign of appreciation if because we make fun of each other. You know, it's if I like you, I'm going to pick at you type thing. And so prior to the Bat, Budget Batman thing, you know, we would poke fun at the furries or the this or there's something that even we kind of struggled with that was different than norm. But my point was, as I've evolved, I guess, as myself and in getting into this, especially hosting the Covington Comic Con, you know, it's awesome to see people that I think in normal life struggle to get to be themselves or be open and have fun and have a place to, to be free. And so I really like seeing everybody's cosplays. And then some of these folks put so much effort and talent into the costumes, you know, it's very impressive. So anyway, I feel kind of bad that I was sort of on the negative spectrum there with it. Um, but now I'm very positive. I think everybody should cosplay. I mean, I think adults at Halloween should dress up when they take the kids trick or treat, you know, it's great fun. There's nothing wrong with that being an adult. Absolutely. 
get out there and let your your freak flag fly a little bit. I think that everybody should find that that thing that allows them to express themselves. Mm -hmm. And if it's cosplay, then more power to you. If you're not comfortable with that, then find that thing that you are. I've spent most of my time going to cons. We've, we've been going to cons for probably 10, 15 years now. And I spend most of my time at cons behind the camera. Uh, I kind of started becoming known for my cosplay photography and we would go to events specifically for me to take pictures and for the wife to go and, and play and do her thing. And it got to be one of those things where I've had cons reach out to me and say, Hey, you know, uh, we'll give you a media pass if you want to come and take some pictures and stuff. And so much like, you know, Josh does with the cosplay videos, I started doing a lot of that and having a lot of fun with it. And it allowed me to connect with a lot of the cosplayers on a very personal level. You know, there, there's something so cool about taking a picture of somebody who is in that representation of what makes them feel stronger or more powerful. And I take a picture of them that suddenly becomes their profile picture. Mm -hmm. They take something that I created and they allow that to express who they are to mm -hmm. the world, which is super cool. Well, that's a nice perspective on it because I know, so I was a pro MMA fighter years ago. And in that, uh, back in the day, there would be photographers taking photos of you. And I used, I actually still use uh, in this building, there's a big blow up. Or actually, I think it's in one of my schools now. A great photo that this one uh, photographer caught of me in a fight kicking a guy, kicking at a guy. And it was great. Like, I've used it for years. Well, she sent me a letter at one point and was not pleased that I was using the photo. And I did give her the credit in the beginning, but I'll be honest, I was using it a lot. Um, but I think that's a good perspective that you see that, oh, man, they appreciate what you, what you did. Um, and, you know, they sort of live through your creation. Right. So I think that's great that you have that perspective on it. Did you, so on the photography, you say you like doing the cosplay stuff. You do, I assume, other photography, too. Or primarily cosplay? Well, it's kind of evolved into mostly doing cosplay. I I do a lot of other types of, of photography as it comes up. I, I don't spend a whole lot of time with it, not near as much as I would like to. Mm -hmm. But I do uh, some pinup photography. I do some landscape photography. I enjoy doing street photography sometimes. I just mm -hmm. go around, uh, uh, you know, if I'm in Nashville or something, I'll walk around on Broadway with a camera and just take pictures of people that are out on the street and that kind of thing. And uh, so I'll take a picture of anything that will allow me to take a picture of it, essentially. Gotcha. And, uh, but cosplayers, to me, are one of those fields where there's a lot of appreciation for what I do. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, you can go and you can get somebody to take a cell phone picture standing in front of the, the, you know, the event sign or something. But getting a picture that really makes you look like a superhero, a lot of times is hard to do. Mm -hmm. Because in, in this digital age that we live in where everybody's got a camera on their phone or everybody owns a digital camera, there's a lot of people that think that just because you have good equipment, that makes you a photographer. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I say it all the time, there, there is no substitute for the eye that goes with being a good photographer. You can have the most expensive camera out there and have no idea how to take a good picture with it. But if you have the ability to take a picture that really lets that person shine, then you've you've managed to create something and that's kind of where i've fallen when it comes to that is i've got a lot of people that that very specifically like my photography style when it comes to doing their cosplay photos you uh, mentioned the the pinup photography did you see recently i don't know what artist it was but this photographer did a series 
where he recreated like 40s uh, military pinups where they were on the planes. Mm -hmm. Like he had them in the outfits, the girls in the outfits on the planes. Like sitting on the wing of the plane. Yeah, 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 yeah. In fact, I was looking at at a picture like that just either today or yesterday that I thought was really cool. And it took me a minute of looking at it to see exactly what was going on. I was like, oh, that's really cool. Yeah, I think that's cool. I think we, I guess because I'm getting old, I like some of the, um, uh, like the, who was it? It may have been your wife I was talking to. Maybe we were talking about that. The pinup stuff and then the, um, what is the other photography that's similar to that? It's not nudity, but Adore. hints at nudity. So so you've got boudoir photography. Maybe that's what I'm which, thinking of. Uh, is kind of a uh, tamed down version of erotica. Yeah. Uh, you know, you've got a kind of a spectrum when it comes to photography. You've got your, your pornography. You've got your erotica. You've got your, your boudoir. You've got your pinup. And, you know, and, well, and things like that. My point was, I think that as a society, we're so rushed to, uh, we want everything right now, including those kind of things. Like, mm-hmm. there's no romance. There's no build up. There's no excitement up. It's like, let me just see it all. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? And, like, I think that I, I appreciate more uh, some of those subtleties. Like Hitchcock, even with horror. You mm-hmm. know, there was a hint at something grotesque maybe but you didn't actually see what it was and i think that takes a more evolved a more mature brain to appreciate than just oh look you get to see whatever you know what i mean but but hitchcock was a master at both of those he was a master of taking horror and putting it like right there on the edge Mm -hmm. but also when it came to uh his more erotic content for example the shower scene in psycho yeah you could you saw just enough Mm -hmm. to understand what was going on and to go, Ooh, are we going to get to see more? Mm -hmm. But he wouldn't go over that line. And that's a true art to be able to, uh, kind of titillate the viewer Mm -hmm. with that, whether it is, uh, you know, looking at a pretty girl or looking at something scary Yeah, and he could do both. Yeah. Anyway, I think, I think it's a missed art now. And I think, uh, uh, maybe I guess as I get older that it's because, Older guys appreciate it, and the, but younger guys drive the market, so I don't know. You guys and gals, I think both, but interesting. So talking about art, another thing that uh, he said you were into, and I didn't know this from the last time we talked. And actually, I saw, I guess, on your post, you're in a band or were in a band? Were. or Okay. Well, so what, what kind of music was it? What, what did you play or sing, or what were you doing with it? So the band was, uh, was called The Murdering Crows. Uh, we considered our style uh, Delta Gothic. Mm-hmm. So it was a retro type sound that was very much influenced by delta blues and southern gothic music and retro rock and and you know things like that uh, i was the bass player i played upright bass and the wife was the singer in the band we had a guitar player and a drummer uh, so it was just a four-piece unit and we were together for about five maybe six years and we recorded an album that uh, you know is available out there on, on the iTunes and the other places where you get music. But uh, we recently kind of brought it to an end, uh, which was sad because we were really starting to, I think, get some good momentum. We would do a show and then somebody would approach us by the end of the show and say, hey, you know, we've got this festival coming up next year. Uh, would you guys be interested? So we started booking some relatively big events mm-hmm. uh, toward the end, and then we just had to kind of cut it off and not do a couple things that we really wanted to do. But How long have you played bass? Wow. Uh, 
I started playing probably around the end of high school uh, and played off and on. You play the, uh, the regular bass or I, just I upright, played both, both of them? Uh, but it, for the band, mostly I played upright just because it kind of lent a little bit more toward the music that how, we were doing. How does that tr- – my son is playing bass. Now, he's been playing uh, – working on a year, and he's in the N.A., the band. Uh, my other son is the lead, one of the lead singers there and plays guitar and multiple instruments. But my youngest son, Jude, just picked up the bass, started playing. For Christmas – no, what was it? For his birthday, we got him a new fancy bass, like a five-string. But I was curious, uh, also my partner, Brian, his brother who passed away this year, Aaron, uh, got the tattoo about Aaron, see it's a bass head, he uh, played bass. But I was curious, how does the transition from the regular, what do you call it, the regular bass? I I refer to it as a slab. Slab versus the upright bass. It's it's a very different instrument. Uh, For one, when you're playing a slab, you've got it strapped over your shoulder and it kind of just stays in one place. When you're playing an upright, it's suspended by the same hands that are, you know, doing other things on mm-hmm. it. Uh, and you got it kind of leaned into your body a little bit, but you're still holding it up with your left hand while you're playing and you're still kind of holding some things in place with your right hand. So it's, it's kind of a juggling act, but also there are no frets on it mm-hmm. and you kind of have to figure out where you're supposed to be. And the uh, fret positions on the upright are spaced out a lot more. Mm-hmm. Uh, than they are on a, a standard. Does instrument. the left hand pluck or no, press? No, the left hand, still... well, I mean, since I'm right-handed, my left hand uh, uh, handles the fretboard, mm. uh, and then the right hand plucks the, the strings. I just didn't, because I'm stupid, I didn't know if maybe this one plucked and this one plucked, or if it was like with the slab base where this is depressing the yeah, it's, it's That, that the works essentially okay. the same way. It's just, it's a different position. And it can be awkward sometimes trying to go back and forth between the two, but uh, it's it's doable for most people. I mean, if I can do it, and, you know, I think pretty much any bass player can because I'm not that great. But uh, it's a fun instrument to play, and it's more visually dynamic. Uh, I never had anybody approach me at a show and and just you know come straight to me and talk to me after doing a performance until the first time I brought in my upright and mm-hmm. then all of a sudden everybody was my friend yeah uh, so everybody has questions well, it's a cool about instrument it. yeah it really is it's, it's kind of like a saxophone you know both of them are kind of cool the downside to it is that if I don't stay with it there's always somebody messing with it I don't know what it is about an upright bass hmm. when you, when you set it down somebody is going to come up and start messing with it. It's, it's, it's like a pregnant woman's belly. If for some reason, everybody thinks they it. can touch it. And the same thing with this, I, I was doing a show one time and somebody's kids came up into the stage area and two of them walked over and just started grabbing my strings in mm. the middle of playing a song. I'm like, well, you know, come get your kids. But <laughs> yeah, the, it just, it really, is weird that when you play an instrument like that, so many people feel like it just gives them the right to walk up and talk and, and touch it. And I've had people pick up my instrument and start playing it when I walked away from the stage. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I had to really get on somebody one time because I walked over and this, this uh, kid who's probably 11 years old had my instrument up off the stage and was like hitting on the strings. And I'm like, dude, you don't ever, touch someone else's instrument without asking. I mean, that's a good rule to live by anyway. Yeah, yeah, especially but, in the bathroom. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so I, was, <laughs> I was thinking about uh, in the martial arts stuff, I've done demonstrations and same thing with weapons, 
where I'll have some nunchucks or a sword or something, and you gotta you like watch. This? You gotta watch that stuff. Yeah, and I mean these are weapons, and they're coming up, and you know, act like it's a toy. But yeah, no, you're. I, I get it on the the instruments. I, I couldn't. Uh, I couldn't imagine. Um, so on another thing that sort of is art that I that I sort of wanted to, to get into at some detail with you is you being a detective. Hmm? And how long were you a detective? 16 years. So was it like homicide specialty or just everything? Or? So uh, the department that I worked for didn't have specific divisions. So mm-hmm. we didn't have a homicide division because we didn't have enough homicides to really warrant that. Mm-hmm. Well, that so good. everybody kind of worked whatever cases came along. Now, my specialty was I did uh, fraud, uh, child exploitation, and digital forensics. Mm-hmm. So I did computer forensics and cell phone and call it cell phone forensics not really forensics when you're doing cell phones but uh so i handled both of those yeah and that how, was you said second. 16 years were you a detective the whole time or did you start patrol no or? i was a police officer for 26 years uh 16 of it was as a detective okay it was all same agency mm-hmm. oh sweet well you don't have to say where it was is it tennessee yes okay so i was uh 12 total years a, a debt patrol deputy mm-hmm. I did apply like four or five years in to go to the CID division, and I was on SWAT and stuff, and they made excuses on why I could, they didn't want me to be a detective. Hindsight, I don't know that I would have enjoyed it. it I think it would have made me better um, eventually as a lawyer earlier on because we really go more head-to-head, especially for trial work, with the detectives than we do with the patrol officers. Mm-hmm. The patrol officers we will in sessions, court and stuff, but really it's detective work that we tear down as defense lawyers. Um, so let me ask you this, cause you did it a lot longer than I did. And I was very jaded. I was very biased to the state and felt that, um, like, honestly, it was almost like I had to decompress from that bias, uh, to get on this side. I really struggled with work and defense work in the beginning. Uh, didn't want to do it. Got it because the judges will appoint you cases mm-hmm. And you can you can sort of say no, but it's bad. It's really bad to say no right. if you're going to stay in that jurisdiction. You want that judge to like you, so they would appoint me cases, and I was like, great. And I've got to do a good job. It's my duty. Um, but but I, and then I was good at it. But I was very biased that the state was right in the beginning because I've been a cop so long. Did you feel at the time like maybe you know, and some don't, but did you ever feel any bias? And then now that 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 you're retired from that, do you see it any different at all? I don't know that. I really changed my opinion on it since retiring because I was always one of those people that I tried to keep an open mind about the possibility of things being done wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, uh, the idea of, of cops backing each other up no matter what they do. Mm-hmm. And to me, that is, I don't want to say patently false. I'm say on a scale, it's, it happens a lot less than people want to uh, believe that it does. But I agree with that. More cops are of a position where if they see their partner messing up really bad to the point that it's going to be a problem for all of us, we will call them out on it. Uh, So I think that I was always one of those people that kind of watched just to make sure that that things weren't getting out of control. And and I, I, of course, watched cases where clearly somebody was going down the wrong rabbit hole to, to get their case done. And, and a lot of times it would reverse itself and they would realize that they had the wrong uh, direction going on it. Like, for example, I had, a, I had a case that I worked one time where it was a person that was going to churches and they would go through the offices and steal out of purses from the employees. And, you know, nobody wants to think that anything like that even happens, 
and I got a lead on a suspect uh, who was at a location where one of these stolen purses was recovered. And one of my bosses really wanted me to go ahead and charge this, this person. I was like, something's not right with it. Doesn't feel right. I don't want to move on this just yet. Give me a little bit more time with it. Sure enough, that was not the person that had committed the crime. They just happened to be into the same kinds of crime and happened to cross paths at a, at a singular location with someone else that was doing that kind of thing. And fortunately, I didn't charge that person with that based on that one piece of evidence. Mm-hmm. I had to wait till I got just a little bit more. And when I got a little bit more, it turned out to be somebody totally different. Yeah. Yeah, well, I guess let me clarify what I mean on the bias, because after you responding that way, it makes me think that sometimes when I say it, cops especially think that I'm focused on, like, um, corruption or something. I, in all the years I was law enforcement, and even now where I still kind of work with them, I know them all, see them all the time. Today, there were three deputies I saw that I worked with when I was a deputy in court. You know, they were, they're bailiffs now. Anyway, I think the vast majority of law enforcement officers are trying to do a good job. I don't think they're out there targeting people based on race or socioeconomic class or any of that. I think they're generally trying to do a good job. What I'm saying is sometimes there are cases where the client may actually be innocent. And instead of doing what you just mentioned, where maybe they, oh, let's turn this extra rock over a little bit. Let's just see. Just because they're, you know, maybe they say they're in the area or they got some proof that this person fits the description of whatever. Mm-hmm. But, you know, hell, they got thousand other people that might fit the description. They focus on this one person. And when they, especially patrol officers that really kind of have some discretion, you know, I, it just as an example, DUI. You know, they think, uh, oh, yeah, smell over intoxicant. He even says he had something to drink or whatever. And, but they're not sure, and they know that more likely in court there's really not enough evidence for a conviction, but yet they're going to lock them up anyway when they could have let somebody pick them up or they could have, you know, give them a ride home themselves. There's options they have while they're on the street, and then they just choose not. And so when I say, I guess bias may not be the right word, I think often that's like the path of least resistance, but they don't think about the ripple effects that decision has on the family of this person that's arrested and accused of a crime now. This person may not have the money to even hire a lawyer. It's just literally a ripple effect that right. spreads and, and affects so many other people. So not that they shouldn't arrest people, but you know maybe like you just mentioned, do a little more due diligence just to make sure. Just because you got probable cause, does that really mean that this is the right move to do to lock somebody up? So that's the struggle that I have. And I know that in my department, and you can speak to yours, they didn't have uh, quotas, but you were promoted based on performance, based on SIAs. And so the self-initiated activities were arrests, traffic stops, uh, citations, warrants you served, which is all activity, still sort of a quota. Right. So, And, and yeah, you're, you're always going to have your guys that just live for the job mm-hmm. and they want to lock up as many people as they can. They want to get as many tickets as they can. And to me, it starts to uh, squash ethics a little bit when you're, you're so focused on trying to be that high performer so that you can be noticed that it does lend itself to making probably less than good judgment in certain situations. But I'll, I will also say that you know, you're talking about a ripple effect. Let's look at the butterfly effect of decisions like what you're talking about. So I just pulled somebody over for what I suspect to be drinking and driving. 
I get them pulled over. I'm smelling alcohol coming from that person. So I know there's been some drinking going on. Mm -hmm. And so we get out, we do a little test and maybe they don't just blow the whole test, but they make a couple of mistakes. Yes, I do have the option to call somebody to come and get them. The problem is that we've also seen that go south way too many times. Mm -hmm. Uh, So if I make a decision that I'm going to allow a family member to come and get them, then that person goes home. Somebody comes and gets their car for them and drives it to the house. They go home. They have another beer. Then they get in that car and they go out and then they kill somebody as a result of that action. So whereas I could have gone ahead and put them in jail, let them go through the legal process. Instead, I put someone back out on the street that just went out and harmed someone else. And now my credibility is on the line. My conscience is on the line. And my department's looking at me going, what did you do? So there's, there's two sides to that issue. Mm-hmm. There, there are easy ways to do it. And if we could count on people to just go home and sleep it off, that'd be great. Mm-hmm. But we all know that doesn't always happen. Yeah, you're right. I agree with you. There's definitely a ripple effect on both sides. Uh, but I guess my counter to that would be, um, you know, Blackstone once said that I would rather have 100 guilty men walk free than one innocent man convicted. And the system, and, and I know I have bias on this side now, too. I like to try to think I'm in the middle, but I, I'm sure I have bias on this side because I do see this side's effects so often. I literally had a client two day in court. And we ended up entering a plea to a felony offense, okay? And it was, a, it was a domestic issue. And honestly, I believe the guy. I don't think he did anything to this girl. I really don't. I think that she was trying to get out of the relationship. This was a method of doing it. She managed to get distance from him. But because of her statements to the state, the state refused to come off of the charge. And because of the risk at what he was facing, if we went to trial and lost— We'd worked out a plea arrangement that he decided was in his best interest. And honestly, I, we had even told him that we would take it to trial for free because that's how much I felt that I didn't want an innocent person to plea, but there's such a big risk. And what was interesting that's relevant to what we're talking about is I was talking with him and his father outside of the, uh, uh, the courtroom. And again, I was sort of saying how, you know, it's interesting that they were law-abiding citizens, God-fearing, loving the Constitution, you know, police supporters— but then all of a sudden they see how it applies to them and that the relate that, that the the system is not perfect you know it's flawed and i'm not saying that uh, i i judge cops for doing their job and like people up i did it you know my point is you're when you're on the side of the road on a traffic stop as a law enforcement officer you have the power you know as most people are complying it's different if they're bucking up you're going to do what you got to do anyway but if you got somebody that's complied he's done what you've asked them to do and you're not sure well if you're not sure a jury's not going to be sure so there could be another option there besides this just lock them up and let the system do uh, what it does technically yes cops only have to have probable cause to lock somebody up but hindsight now with the experience i've had as a defense lawyer there are a lot of arrests I would have handled differently now. But again, that could be biased on this side too. You know, I don't know. I think that everybody that has ever been in law enforcement can revisit something that they did in their career and think, I probably could have done that a little bit differently. But to address your, your, your comment about the, uh, the Blackstone quote, I hate to sound like a monster, but I disagree with the quote. Uh, And the reason I disagree with that is that 
while I hate the idea of an innocent person going to jail, we do have a very imperfect system. And until we have a perfect system, we have to accept that mistakes are going to be made. Innocent people don't tend to reoffend. So if I've got a bunch of people that are being released because there are holes in the system that are designed to keep this innocent person, this one innocent person from going to jail, now we've got thousands of people that are guilty back out on the street. And my experience working the cases that I worked is that those people don't go back and go, oh, my bad, I'm going to be a better person now. They go back out on the street and they do the same thing. And you, as a lawyer who handles DUIs, if you're going to be honest with yourself, you have to know that that guy that drives drunk once has a lot of potential to do it again and again. So, yeah, I hate the concept of somebody that did nothing going to jail. Typically, people that have never done anything wrong don't end up in jail for life for murdering somebody. But are there better ways that we can do things like like DUI, for example? Absolutely. I think we are far beyond needing to change up some things in that uh, system as far as how we train our officers, the demands that we put on the officers for how they conduct themselves in the field. The idea of quotas and, and performance evaluations that are based on how many cases you can develop, those are great examples of things that we could definitely reevaluate and do better. Uh, so yeah, I think it's a, uh, I think both sides of it can stand to benefit from thinking about some different approaches to it. Yeah, so, and I appreciate your perspective on things. I always like when people sort of have a different view on things than me because I try to, I view argument the way the Greeks did, or I try to. It's easy to say when you, you know, when we're being uh, civil here, but I like to say I enjoy argument. And my argument, view on argument, though, is not like, you know, throwing punches and fighting. It's that we discuss our different views, and then one of us may walk away with more information, which would mean maybe we changed our perspective. And to me, that's the winner is really the one that traditionally loses the argument. But, but anyway, what I was going to say, just a little side note on that, because I understand your perspective. I used to have that perspective, is I view it now as the Constitution is there to protect our rights. And so you made a comment about um, they may reoffend. My perspective is they didn't offend. They didn't. They're innocent as they sit. And if they get not guilty or it's null pros or dismissed through anything I did or mistakes on law enforcement, the person was never an offender. They were. I, I even filed motions in court in trials to prevent the DA from calling the defendant a defendant hmm. because that infers they did something. And the way our, our system is, if you look at the, the basis of the Constitution, is to protect the civil liberties and uh, hold the state to the burden. And if the state doesn't carry that burden, that person is innocent. Mm -hmm. And so my first, my, not frustration, but I guess the, I guess it is a frustration is that I agree. I don't want guilty people walking away either. You know, I live in the same community. You know, I mean, I, I had to defend a guy one time that was a co-defendant that broke in my own car. <laughs> you know, I don't like that. But at the same time, uh, I've seen enough innocent people accused of things that, I don't like the idea of even one, I just couldn't, I just sounds terrible to me to know the person. Just imagine someone close to you accused of something they didn't do, life on the line, reputation ruined, bank account destroyed by the whole system, and they didn't do it, and then they get convicted. Yeah. 
that's the struggle that I have. Oh, uh, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying I'm not I'm not talking about the innocent person who's been charged mm-hmm. reoffending. I like when innocent people reoffend mm-hmm. because that just means they're being innocent over again. <laughs> okay. So uh, I don't have any problems with them going right. My my issue is that if we have a thousand guilty walking free, mm-hmm. those thousand are probably almost all going to reoffend because mm-hmm. for one. They offended in the first place because they chose a path that didn't challenge them. And if we let them get away with it, then they become empowered. I saw it over again, over again. I worked for four years on a task force with the Secret Service. And we had one particular case with a identity theft trafficker that lived for it, clearly. Mm -hmm. And we charged her with a significant load Uh, And it was somebody that I had actually encountered as a result of being a detective on my department before I went to the task force. So I'd already seen this name. Before my four years on task force was up, we were looking at this same person again Mm -hmm. because she had gotten out of jail and then turned around and reoffended again. And I've said over and over again that people that are career criminals, they're not doing it because the, the job at NASA didn't work out. They're doing it because that's the path they've chosen. Yeah. Yeah, no, and I agree with you on that. You know, statistically, we've discussed this before, at least in my own firm, probably 10 to 15 percent of my clients, and that would be at the high end, were innocent. Mm -hmm. You know, now now there may be a little higher level that are legally innocent, but factually, maybe not, you know. But like to be like they did not do it at all, eh, it's probably 10 or 15 percent or so like that. So, and I also agree that, yes, you do have, there are repeat offenders, uh, but it brings up a whole nother topic on um, uh, offenses that are, you know, sort of prohibited by the state, but is there really a victim? Like, for instance, marijuana, you know, Uh, we don't have to go into your view on it, but personally, never used it, don't have any plans to use it, if at least it's not my thing, right? But I think there's a lot of studies at this point that show that it has not only medicinal benefits, but there are some people that, I mean, their anxiety could benefit from it. And alcohol and uh, and tobacco is worse. You know, the cigarettes and alcohol is way worse. I and mean, yet we penalize people, get them convicted of felonies and even uh, federal charges for marijuana. You know, and so I struggle with those being, you know, when you have somebody that comes in, they smoke a little weed and not even driving or anything. They're literally just, they smoke some weed for personal use. And then all of a sudden now they're sitting by somebody that's molested children, you know, like, uh, I struggle with those kind of crimes. Um, but you know, that's a whole political thing. So I guess we'll see. No, I mean, surprisingly enough, I actually share your view on that. I think Mm -hmm. that, that marijuana use is one of those things that I have no interest in it, never tried it, don't intend to, but I don't see it as being the big bad that it's always been made out to be. Yeah. And it's a complicated subject because like alcohol, it will impair someone who's behind the wheel, Mm -hmm. but it also becomes very hard to prove that that's what messed them up while they were behind the wheel. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the, the struggles that I have with it, uh, ethically and legally is that if it's not something that you can say they were under the influence of this at that time, if there's not a test to show that, then it becomes problematic. Uh, and that's one of the things about doing the blood alcohol tests and breath tests and stuff when it comes to alcohol is you can show mm-hmm. that it was happening as we stand there. But because the uh, the marijuana tests can can show positive for as long as they can, it makes they it do really have hard. some. There are some advancements on that. Like I think Colorado has, which was the first to legalize it recreationally, 
I think they have some way they do the blood test where they get the the percentages of what's in there, and there's a certain amount of the metabolite present. I forget what the number is. That's and then so uh, anyway that that's supposed to show impairment, kind of like the 0.08 on blood alcohol. And then there are some other states kind of copying that, so it's progressing. Um, but I don't have a problem with you know you shouldn't smoke marijuana and drive around you shouldn't drink alcohol and drive around like i think that's given that's a choice you're making and then there's potential repercussions i'm more the issue i have is if i'm sitting in my house and i decided i want to smoke marijuana i'm a grown man Mm -hmm. that's decided to do it and i don't want the government telling me what i can and can't do when it doesn't affect other people directly you know if you get a car drive around you do you know it's different so but um I, I don't know. There's, I'm a libertarian, so you know I always say this all the time as a joke, uh, but it's kind of true. I want the Republicans to stay out of my bedroom, and I want the Democrats to stay out of my pocket. So that's kind of the way I look at politics in general. That's a good standard. <laughs> yeah. So Daryl, we've been going. We've been going for a good minute. I enjoyed talking with you. Is there? Uh, tell everybody if they wanted to find you or how to follow your stuff. What you got going on? Where they can. So my photography and video is on, uh, it's at Toy Robot Visual Arts. Uh, you can find my YouTube channel. You can find uh, me on Instagram and I think on TikTok, but I have very little success on TikTok. Uh, and I have a, a moderately successful YouTube channel called Dad Budget Adventures that uh, focuses on disaster preparation, survival, and, and outdoors and such. And it has a companion TikTok that is equally frustrating. But uh, you can find me on either one of those. Nice. Well, I didn't know you were into that. We could talk about that stuff because I start. I got another a, show. Right I've there. got a go bag. I just uh, put it together a few weeks ago. Uh, I, I have an interesting view though on the whole uh, disaster prep. I'll tell you this, and then I'll shut up unless you got some feedback on it. Uh, there, I was in the gym. This has been several years ago, and there was a guy in there who's a big prepper, like big. And everybody he met, he wanted to talk about prepping. Yeah. So I'm trying to lift weights and stuff, and he is a little annoying. He comes up, and he just keeps on wanting to know what I was doing uh, to get ready, that he's got the hydroponics, and he's got cells, uh, solar power, all this stuff, right? He's got the water and the cans and the ammunition and medicine, all these things at his house. And he goes – he just he was acting like I was an idiot because I didn't have any of that ready. And I'm lifting the weights. Now, keep in mind, at the time, I think I had just had a pro fight – you know, I was SWAT guy, the, had all the guns, all, you know, all this train, all this martial arts training and everything. And he goes, so, you know, what, what you're not doing any preparation. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? I said, I'm going to come take your shit. <laughs> and he goes, he hadn't thought about that. That oh maybe now I'm like I don't need to have it I'm gonna come get you. I mean that in <laughs> itself is a strategy that some <laughs> of them take. But yeah, he is everything that's wrong with that entire community. You know, I consider uh-huh. myself a disaster preparedness guy. Okay, gotcha. Not a doomsday prepper. Okay, cool. Uh, I think there there's a very wide spectrum and there's a large gap between the two. Yeah, yeah. And my thing is to be ready to take care of me and my family for the time that it's going to take for things to kick back in. Because mm-hmm. honestly. If the world comes to an end, if shit hits the fan and everything falls apart, all bets are off anyway. Yeah. And I don't think that a whole lot of people are going to want to live in that environment. And unless you've got a nice bunker in the ground with about 10 years worth of food in it, none of it's really going to matter anyway. Yeah. Where do you where do you live, city? In Bartlett. Bartlett. So we were talking, my partner and I have talked about this some because we live here. I live in the city. I live literally right off the square, which if something 
bad happen would be, you know, the metropolitan areas, I think, would be one of the first that's yeah. going to be really dangerous. You got some fallout there you got to survive through. Now, he lives out in the county pretty far and does kind of have his own little commune set up. So I would just need to make my way out that way. He's got solar power and he does have hydroponics and like all oh, they got a, a, a they got cattle and farm and the whole deal. So that's where I would make. I told him that I would go get medicine first and I've got guns and stuff and ammo. And then after a few weeks, uh, you can go back and pick up whatever you want because, you know. Well, my advice to people with that perspective is have something to bring with you. Yeah. Because the concept of showing up at your friend's house that has done all the work. Yeah. It's not going to fly in a disaster. So if you didn't bring something with you, it's yeah. like showing up for Thanksgiving dinner with nothing. In I, I agree. So, I agree. I, we, you kinda, he's kind of my brother. He's almost yeah. like Josh and Justin over here. So he, I think he would be okay. Plus, he knows that I have the, I can go take the stuff if needed. And it's not necessarily his wheelhouse. So I think we would be all right. But anyway, that's an interesting conversation. We can have another day Absolutely. on it. Uh, well, Daryl, I enjoyed talking to you. Thanks you for too. being on the show with us today. Thanks for having me. And thank everybody for watching. As always, we try to be here on every Tuesday uh, with a new guest and some new information for you guys. Uh, if you haven't, uh, please like, follow, subscribe to content. I say that all the time, but it does really help when you guys go. It helps other people find the content, and then it sort of shows some value in what we're doing. Uh, we do have a TikTok, and although I don't have the followers on YouTube, I actually have TikTok. That's, so for whatever reason, mostly because people want to make fun of my hair. Yes. Um, I enjoy that part. Uh, N.A. The Band, Inside My Head. I was talking about them a little bit on here today. They've got the album Inside My Head. It's available for free wherever you listen to music, so please give those guys a listen. Michelle Allen is a longtime sponsor of our show. She's a cry-like realtor in the area. She's also big on the Chamber of Commerce, other local events. Uh, we really enjoy Michelle, so give her a holler. Uh, Mason's High Octane Martial Arts has been in Covington since 1993. We just opened a second location in Millington. We have some Christmas specials working now, so feel free, free to visit masonsmartialarts.com. We can get you more information. And then the new business I'm doing is Jam Books and Records. Hopefully it'll be open on Black Friday. That's what we're projecting, so we'll see how that works. But uh, got lots of books and records, new and used, but mostly new, actually, so check us out. And then Masonite Digital Marketing, anytime you're getting married, uh, and you, you, you know, you're especially if you're marrying a man and you're a man, Josh, especially is going to help you with masonitemarketing.com. So I'll just fi- check I'll that out. Whatever, as long as you pay me. <laughs> <I don't care>. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so thank you guys for watching. I hope you have a good week. Keep kicking. Thanks for watching, guys. Just remember that this is not legal advice or investment advice or business advice. This is for fun and entertainment purposes only.